We are Spry, a group of remote digital marketers who want you to succeed beyond your wildest dreams. Our curiosity drives us to constant learning, and that learning leads to constant teaching. So come along with us on the Spry Space podcast, where we share what we know, learn what we don't, and do it all wherever we want. Hello and welcome to the Spry Space Podcast. I'm Lacey and today I have the fabulous Miss Adrian with me. Hi, how's it going? I'm feeling cuckoo bananas today, to be honest. How about you? Oh, same, same. <laughs> same. <laughs> We're getting into Q4 of 2020. I'm not sure anybody feels any differently than that right now. I just don't know what else to expect. So it's kind of like one of those things where you just kind of got to go with the flow. You kind of just lay down and let what happens, happens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Be responsible, but also, you know, there you go. Yeah. So this month, all month long, we decided that we didn't want to learn anything new this month because it's too hard. So Instead, we looked for how we could kind of process and vent a little bit. And what we stumbled upon is the fact that The Social Dilemma is a new, do we call it a documentary? It's kind of like a docudrama almost. Yeah, it's a docudrama. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That um, is on Netflix and it's all about social media, right? And so because that is a conversation that is starting to trend some and because obviously social media, the platforms are so integral to our careers, we thought we would take this month to everybody at Spry has watched The Social Dilemma and we are spending the whole month reflecting on basically what it means and what we can do about it, etc. So you have watched it now. Have you watched it just one time? Well, yes, I've watched it one time. I will say that it hit me. I cried when I watched mm -hmm. it. The thing about The Social Dilemma is that there's nothing new in it, really. Mm -hmm. But when I was going to graduate school at University of Washington, I focused on digital media in my degree. And back in 2012, basically, we could have made this <laughs> documentary. Eight years ago. Yes. And so it's kind of like one of those things where I watched it and I was like, Yes, everything has occurred exactly as everyone said it would. So <laughs> so yes, I've watched it once, but it was kind of like looking back in time. Mm, that makes really good sense. I've watched it twice now, and I also paired it with watching The Social Network, which is, you know, kind of a based on fact movie on the start of Facebook. And so watching those two in combined was a really good kind of foundational education for just talking about social media and the platforms and what everyone is experiencing on them right now and what we can do about it. So for those of you who have not heard of it before, what is it, two hours, one and a half hours? It's one and a half hours, yeah. Mm -hmm. On Netflix, and it's called The Social Dilemma. And let's talk about who is in the documentary. So why is it credible in the first place? Adrian? can you give us a little insight into that? Yeah, so I don't have their exact names out in front of me. I mean, we can all look it up. But basically, it's a bunch of first of, you know, the original engineers at Facebook, uh, Twitter, Google, 
all those tech companies. There's a few uh, founders or ex-CEOs. I know the creator of Pinterest was on it. Very high-level people in the tech industry. Mm -hmm. And some of the positions they had on there, too, were people like the guy who was the president of Pinterest. He was also the director of monetization at Facebook before he came to Pinterest, right? And so we've got people in those more business-type roles They had somebody who was one of the directors of growth, which basically means, you know, how much more and more and more can we, you know, how many more and more users can we get? So there was both the programming side, like the developers, the engineers, and then there was also the business side, you know, some of the monetization and the growth tactics and the people in charge of those who were in the video as well. If anybody takes anything away from that documentary, I at least want people to know and understand that tech companies kind of seem like it's kind of like in pop culture. It's like a lot of people imagine, still imagine Facebook as kind of a startup type of thing, even though we know it's not. It's just, you know, when you think of Facebook, you think of these like new, quote unquote, new tech companies because they are new. They're super young comparatively to other large corporations. Yeah. So we think it's just like a party of developers kind of geeking out in their basements working on something. But there's a lot of people with a lot of different expertise working on these things. And so I think if if anybody comes out of this, that that is a very key piece that's important. What I felt like was a common thread between the contributors of the documentary were a lot of them were calling for change. They talked about three goals. They had engagement, growth, and ads, I think, was the last one, right? So how do they increase engagement? How do they get more users and how do they make more money? And people started raising alarm bells at the fact that nobody was asking if this was good for people. You know, people were starting to see in their own selves the product of the addictive nature of the notification systems that they were programming and started to ring some alarm bells that kind of just never got acted upon. Right. Exactly. I think that when we talk about social media and especially in the social dilemma, there's a few things that, you know, that you mentioned here, engagement, growth, and then the money, obviously. But nobody would have given them money if they hadn't grown, right? So it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, advertisers since the beginning of time, when you notice a new trend, you you notice something in pop culture or that people love, obviously you want to try to align yourself with that. Yeah, if it makes sense, right? Kind of the genius of Facebook, because honestly, I mean, there's MySpace and there was Friendster and there were other social platforms before Facebook in 2004. But Facebook was very targeted when it first began. They targeted only college students. With this exclusive idea. Right. Mm-hmm. You had to have a dot .edu email address. And I got my Facebook in 2005. And I remember feeling... Like you're kind of in a club, right? Yeah, it was. I remember when I became a freshman in college and I got it. It was the first few years it was available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was kind of one of those things where from the very beginning, it was kind of, I don't know if it was intentionally marketed well, but it caught on. You know, whatever they did, if it was planned or strategic or whatever, it was very smart. And 
I remember this too. I remember when they started allowing email addresses out of the .edu address. I remember feeling so irritated because, I mean, let's be real. You couldn't share drunk photos of your friends anymore. Right. This unique selling proposition of this exclusive (laughs) network of college students where we could interact with each other online in kind of a little bit of a private, secure space. Totally. Yes. Now it was opened up. It was opened up because of uh, money. It's kind of similar to when your favorite artists sell out, you know, like you have an artist or a musician or whoever, and you love it and you have your community that you share it and talk about it. And and the values reflect each other. Exactly. The, yeah. And so, and then, and then all of a sudden, you know, oh man, now they're everywhere and they're, you know, they're on McDonald's wrappers and <laughs> I, you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, oh man. But Facebook already had this value. They already had this ingrained value. There's a book that I've talked about before. It's called Hooked. But to get growth, to get people onto a platform, there's a few things that you can do. You can basically, like with Facebook, when it started to roll out, it was one of those things where everyone has it. So it's kind of like the peer pressure, right? So the value you bring is like if you get on Facebook, everyone else will be there. So it's kind of like one of those things where you're not going to be alone. It's already the community's there. So that's one way to get people on. And that's why people often, when you get a new phone or when you download Facebook on a new app, it'll say, hey, do you want to sync your contacts with your friends? They're very good at spreading themselves to new people. Yes, I believe one of the growth directors in the documentary talked about how all they really needed to do was get someone, a new user, to seven friends within 10 days, and then they would stay. I'm not positive that that's the exact stat, but very close to that. Yeah. I would also argue, too, that it wasn't mentioned in this documentary because the documentary is about social media as a whole, but I think Facebook is, you know, obviously the kind of the pioneer But there is incredible value in time. But what I mean by that is like, so I started my Facebook as a, you know, as a freshman in 2005 and you probably were similar. 2006. 2006. And so you and I spent our formative college years on Facebook. We have formative pictures. We have formative messages, maybe old love notes. We have all of these things. And that's why a lot of people also do not, get rid of their MySpace or get rid of different things because you have kind of this valuable content that you don't really want to let go. But, you know, the only way to get rid of it is if you delete Facebook. So, I mean, you could download all the data, you could download all your photos, you could download all that stuff, but it's kind of this record of an experience. And I think that people kind of forget how powerful that is. Once you get people invested their time and content and experience in something, it's so hard to take that away. It's kind of the same thing as if, you know, somebody is a hardcore Boston Red Sox fan because their dad took them to games every year and and they have this kind of emotional investment in this experience. You identify with it. Exactly. And so I think that is kind of a big reason why Facebook kind of just had its like talents in people and then it grew. I will say that they knew that the only way that they wouldn't end up like MySpace is if they did grow. Mm-hmm. So 
Anyway. So let's talk about how rapidly this has happened. I mean, when we think back to 2006 and we think back to how people used Facebook in 2006, we didn't have phones that had Facebook loaded on them. We had to get on our laptops. We had to access it from our computer. So within a matter of less than two decades, the evolution of this technology and the way that we interact with this technology, it's so rapid, the change. It is truly astonishing. You know, obviously we are reviewing The Social Dilemma. We recommend you watch it. But just so you all know, there's a section in the documentary where they talk about computing power, like basic Mm -hmm. computing power and how computer processors have exponentially grown in processing power. And yes, and speed. And it is mind boggling how quickly from, you know, 2000, 2010 to 2020, just the sheer volume of computing power. And it is wild to think But at the heart of it is humans, because we're humans. We're going to human. Humans going to human. We're going to like, want to (laughs) like create, create and share and Mm -hmm. smile, make friends, talk little shit, (laughs) get some rumors in. That's what we thrive on, right? I feel like there should be a nice definition of humans that's like create share connect and talk a little shit (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's basically what we do right Uh (laughs) and kind of as we're talking about the social dilemma social media and all of these platforms that were invented and that they grew i just want to say that from the very beginning so the internet was originally invented by our military who Mm. was like okay it was a cold war and you know, some smart people got together and said, wow, if the Pentagon was taken out for some reason, it would be like the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. The Library of Alexandria burned down and right. no more books. They're gone. There's only one copy of those. So, you know, similar to that, they're like, wow, if somebody were to take out this intellectual property here, we'd be screwed. And so they came up with this idea of basically electronically sharing information to several different nodes so that it would live on forever. And then that idea, you know, went from the military to universities because universities like to be able to share data, research with each other quickly. And then obviously as it grew, then we then they created the HTTP protocol and then we have browsers, and then we have things like Google, and here we are today with the social media. But the internet is like a constant state of experimentation, which is kind of cool. It is kind of cool. And I think where the biggest problems happen is when things that are really cool just become accepted as what is instead of people learning and taking the time to understand how they actually work. There was a big section in there about how one of the engineers, he talked about how he was obsessed with magic as a kid because it was so cool to be able to basically trick with an illusion the mind of people who were way smarter than him, right? Right, yep. And so that's kind of what's happening with a lot of people today who use social media and use the internet is that they just do not understand how the technology works, 
And I think that that's kind of the main point of what's happening right now is that we're trying to open up a dialogue where people are talking about and start to really understand how algorithms work. Yep. And with that knowledge, then comes the opportunity for us to have power over those algorithms, but only if we know how they're working. If we think it's a magic trick, then we feel we don't have power, right? So I think that was like a big purpose of the creators of The Social Dilemma is just giving a space where people can start to learn and talk about how these algorithms work so that we can move from there. Right. And basically, the bottom line is, you know, an algorithm is a, as a computer, very complex computer math, math problem, a math problem. And but algorithms don't have a conscience. They don't have ethics. They don't they know, can't feel they don't. Yeah, it doesn't. If you like to watch something that's very upsetting, maybe upsetting type of content, the algorithm will think, oh, I don't know if this is good or bad content. I just know you like this content and I will give you more of it. And because of the goal, (laughs) because of the goal of engagement, right? If we know what those goals were, those are kind of like core values, right? The goals that they talk about of engagement, growth, and advertising are kind of the core values, right? And so if we're increasing engagement, we're increasing growth, we're increasing the amount of ad dollars coming in, that's accomplishing those goals, but at what cost to the user, right? The user is the product. That's one of the biggest things that a lot of us took away as a theme from this was making sure that people understand that if you're not paying for a product, you are the product, which is fine if you understand it, you know, if you understand that and you're not being tricked by that fact. Right, exactly. That has been stated before and we all at Sprite kind of talk to our family and friends about it. And the more I think about it, the more I think that it is so important for people to realize that the data is immense you know, kind of we're talking about our reactions to it. Now we're kind of talking about how Spry feels about it. But the amount of data we give to the companies is millions of data points every minute. Billions, so much data, so much data. Because not all of us are statisticians and not all of us are engineers. There's no way for any normal person to really comprehend the sheer magnitude of data that they collect on us. And what's funny about it is that it's data that most of us would be like, well, that's not really that bad. Like, I mean, okay, you know, it knows how many minutes and hours I'm on my phone. That's not a big deal, right? Well, (laughs) it can see patterns, Once it starts to figure out the patterns of, okay, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're generally on your phone this many hours, and then Saturday, Sunday, you go do something fun for adventures. You go places. It doesn't take very far to to think, okay, well, Google or Facebook or Instagram or any of those platforms can be like, oh, well, let's just shoot her a restaurant review or let's show her something that will be she'll be receptive to and so the appeal and the kind of intoxicating quality of it is that it gives you things that you like yes it knows you so well yes it's not simply taking that one data point it's not like monitoring you once an hour 
it's getting so much data on you that you don't even know that it's useful. And the thing is, they don't even know if it's useful. They take it anyway because they were like, they were thinking, okay, in the future, there may be something or some company or some app that does need this data and they need this. It's basically selling statistics on human behavior. One of the ways that they explained it is they're not even just selling to advertisers the ability to get your content in front of people, right? That's one piece of what it is. They're getting your content as an advertiser in front of a user who might be interested, right? But what they're really doing, one of the people on there called it like selling human futures, right? They have so much data that's collected that they can make very accurate predictions. And so they're making predictions about your behavior based on how you've behaved in the past, based on how people like you have behaved in the past. And so really it's this game of selling likely human futures based on the huge amount of data that they have that they can predict on. Exactly. And what's so interesting about this and i guess from a oh capitalist perspective it's so exciting is because in the traditional world if you were a company and you wanted to make a product or you wanted to get some marketing data you would have to pay a research company to do marketing data or you would take research from colleges and universities that you know, have grant funding to study certain things, right? And however, all of those have a certain level of ethics that they have to follow. There's research boards. So if I was a PhD student at University of Washington and I wanted to study, oh, let's say, you know, purchase habits of people at retail stores, let's say. Let me color theory, you know. How do people respond to retail store windows, like at Nordstrom or whatever, as they're walking by? What kind of colors can you right? Let's say out? you have a sale sign that's orange and a sale sign that's blue, and you're testing it throughout all of your retail stores. Exactly. And so, if you wanted to do an experiment like that at a university, and you wanted to publish your results, and obviously the only reason to do the study is to get data to back up your hypothesis and get results that people could bank on. There's ROI, right? If a company is like, I want to spend a million dollars on signage, I want to know that it's the best, right? It's all based on business and money and probability. Like you want to know that whatever business decision you make is going to be the best one. And so anytime you want to, you know, do any of these human behavior studies, there is a board of ethics that your experiment has to be run through. You have to have willing participants that sign a consent letter. You have to tell them exactly what data you're going to be getting from them. And you can't collect any other data outside of that. You have privacy concerns. There's all of this research ethics that is a very high bar, okay? So (laughs) we have Facebook and Instagram and all of these channels. And people are giving it away for free. You don't have to ask a a college to do the studies for you. You can just go and get a, you know, do your own experiments on Facebook 
And you can get so much data, even data that you didn't even want, know you wanted, you can get it and then you can come up with new ideas, <laughs> which is great. But also the reason why there's ethics involved is because there is a certain level of, you know, you don't want somebody to take that data and use it against you or use it for nefarious reasons. The way that they talked about it throughout the documentary is that they're basically mining human attention, right? Is that human, the more attention that you give, the more money that they make, right? And so they're mining your attention and figuring out what gets more and more attention. And they talked about the fact that the algorithms, once they're put in place, they have very, very little human oversight, so these ethics boards that you're talking about that you have to run your experiments through, that does not exist in the realm of social media data, right? I mean, they do have ethics people who work at Facebook, but there's no, how do I put this? Their allegiance is not to the university or to, you know, their allegiance is to the money. Their shareholders. Like, their shareholders. They're trying... <laughs> I'm not saying the people that are doing this are like bad people. There's lots of like amazing things that come from social media. And I'm not saying that all the experiments they run are like totally unethical. But when you sign those terms of service, you're basically telling them that you don't mind them using you as a subject. And unlike a study that would be done at a you know different level, you are allowing them to take all the data. I have a dear friend who does sleep research for children in at Harvard. And you have to be very specific. You are only collecting this data from this time of the day to this time of the morning. And you're storing it here and you're protecting it here and you're doing all this stuff. If you don't say you're going to collect their weight or their, I don't know, their hair color, I don't know, whatever it is, you can't. You're not going to. If you did, your experiment would be thrown out. <laughs> Again, that's not the case. For us, we're just, it's like a blanket statement that you can collect whatever you want and just people not realizing what that means. It was Rachel, I think, who said, Rachel on the team at Spry, as we were talking and preparing for this podcast specifically about our reactions, like from Spry, is that you almost have this sense of denial about it. Even sometimes people like us who do know a lot more than the average person about how social media works and how data is collected and how the algorithms work, you have this sense of denial because the scale of what we're talking about is just so large. It's very difficult for the human mind to comprehend the number of data points. Our human brain works that way and we don't understand our own human brain very well, <laughs> you know? And so a lot of us are in a bit of this sense of denial. We can't accept at scale what's happening because we don't understand it. And I don't think anybody really does. I mean, besides the people that created it, they know. And the people that have miles of computers underground processing all this data all the time. Some other things that, you know, so we're talking about reactions. One thing that I think it was Amber that said was that one thing that we all kind of reacted to. And we had, a, actually, we've talked about this at Spry and other situations as well outside of the social dilemma. But, you know, our surprise that more people don't understand this. Like, it's kind of like what you're saying is that just the human brain can't understand the scale and not just the scale of the data, but also the amount of people that are 
at the helm of these companies. Again, Social Dilemma, they were saying that all of these tools that are affecting everybody basically in our country and on the you know global scale are all built by 25 to 40-year-old privileged Caucasian men, mostly, in San Francisco. <laughs> and their concept of the world and their concept of what is and isn't needed or good or whatever. And not to say that, you know, those guys, you know, those people shouldn't be creating things. It's awesome that they're creating these very powerful things. However, there's no consideration that maybe there should be some other people. It's kind of like, you know, in our democracy where, you know, no taxation without representation, but it's kind of like you're building this technology that everybody is using and it was originally created by a very specific subset of people. Of people. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And it's touching everybody. So it's not representative. Yes. I thought as I listened that one of the big themes, you know, we've already talked a lot about the theme of learning how it works, right? I thought another big theme was this kind of call for more ethical design, almost like they were like the people in the documentary were appealing to the engineers, the programmers. They basically had a metaphor about a digital Frankenstein, right? That like a human was a digital Frankenstein and the code that you're writing as an engineer is causing people to take this action and this action and this action. And it's people who make those choices, so it seemed to me like they're appealing to those people a lot in this too. They are appealing to those and to them to design things in a very ethical way. And that is something that I have spoken to my family about. I've spoken to many people about. I kind of go on about it on different Sprite podcasts, but the concept of user experience and the user experience is built in a very specific way like we were saying before, to get you hooked and to get you on their app and stay there forever. Because like the, the longer you're on their, their app, the more data they can get from you. I kind of was talking about this earlier today, but let's say that you were laid off during the coronavirus and you needed to apply for unemployment in Washington State. It takes hours. It is the most frustrating experience, simply trying to tell the state who you are and prove to them that you don't have a job anymore and to, you know, you have your W-2s, you have your money, you have your taxes. All this stuff is tracked. It is tracked and it is provable. So why does it take so long? That is like going back in the Stone Ages. However, you want to buy a car on eBay? Two button pushes. Just boop, boop, boop. It's so easy and it's not necessarily that they make it hard i mean that's kind of the thing that uh, as humans we're very uh, self-involved right we think that the state of washington makes you know these benefits hard to get we think that they're making it hard for us to do ah no what's happening is amazon or ebay is making it easy for you to spend money they're making it as easy as possible for you to interact and complete and task on their websites and their apps as possible because the easier the experience the frictionless the the better experience the more likely you're going to come back that's what i was going to say is 
a couple years ago, we went to a conference and the founder of Netflix was there. And I stole a phrase from him that I've used a lot, which is transactional friction, like reducing the transactional friction as much as possible. How few actions can we get people to take to get them from point A to point where we want them to be, right? Where we make money off of them often, right? Exactly. And just the honest truth is that, you know, for my example, the unemployment commission doesn't have squadrons of Harvard-educated designers and engineers. <laughs> right. <laughs> they don't. That are, you know, they, they are doing the best with what they have, right? And they're trying their hardest. It's a kind of a difference of, of infrastructure, really, and what these two entities value. These companies highly value the user experience because they know having a good user experience means that people will come onto their apps and spend time. If you have a poor user experience, So my time, I worked at a startup. The hardest part building an app is the sign-in process. Like you have to make sure the creating your account for the first time, creating your account for the first time. I can't tell you how long it takes to even create that. It takes so much time. So even then, when you're building a small app, what you can do, and this is back into 2015. So Facebook had a way where you could. You know how you download a new app and it says sign in with Facebook. Or sign in with Google. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have another sign in that you can just use that sign in from your other accounts for this other app. I always use my own email address. I never, ever, ever, ever use Facebook because basically what happens if you allow Facebook to sign in as you is then Facebook can access that data. Yes, creates an even more interconnected network. You just opened up a second window or a third window or more windows. And often, I don't remember if you all remember the Cambridge, they believe it was Cambridge Analytica, the data leak. It was a while ago. But basically, these third-party apps will have all this data on you and that can be easily taken. So so anyway, that's another kind of like hacking thing that's kind of like beside the point. But back on point, user experience is very important and lots of people study it and lots of people are thinking about it constantly and it's kind of in the social dilemma they're saying it's basically you a normal person against a hundred user experience designers yeah they do a visualization (laughs) like this where you're standing looking at the screen and there's a supercomputer and a bunch of engineers pointed at you you yeah. know, looking at the screen. And and <laughs> yes. they say, this is the question they ask, who's going to win, right? Exactly. If it's mm-hmm. you against a supercomputer and highly educated programmers, engineers, developers, who's going to win? I will say that there were a few times throughout the content where they talk about who's going to win as if the computers would win, <laughs> you know? And they talk about, well, nobody understands this. And I felt defensive a few times. Maybe it's because I have stubborn optimism But like, I'm like, we are going to (laughs) win, you know, and we do understand how this works. And every time they said something like that, I kind of wanted to take that power back because I do think that it's possible for people to understand things well enough that we do go to using these things as tools instead of them using us as tools. I believe so. I think that what's interesting, you know, in in our week of introducing the social dilemma and just thinking through kind of bringing up, it kind of brings to the forefront that question that I think a lot of people 
are faced with, we've been faced with it for, you know, ever since we have computers, even before them, before computers, people have been talking about artificial intelligence and kind of what would happen in a future world. What would it look like? And it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, we're not going to have an AI like Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator. That's not going to happen. Too many people want that, first of all. So it's not going to (laughs) happen. My husband says this thing that the zombie apocalypse is never going to happen because it would make too many people happy. It's just not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, though. So many people are just kind of obsessed with zombies. So it's not going to happen the way we imagine it because it's different than what we could imagine. However, what's happening is all this data, the, the results of all this data, all the statistics, all of the basically the science and kind of like an experiment that social media has been running on us has made it so that it can predict what we're going to be doing and it can even alter us. On The Social Dilemma, they're talking about algorithms and how it serves up content to you, not based on whether or not it is good for you or not. You know, so people who are prone to conspiracy theories or prone to, you know, negative news or, you know, all this negative stuff, we'll get more of it. I have a really good friend who has pretty significant OCD and she's pregnant for the first time and her Instagram algorithm keeps in her discover feed, keeps serving up content about like these rare illnesses that could happen during pregnancy. And, you know, so it's just feeding right into that OCD because even though she doesn't mean to, you know, she doesn't like those videos and comment on them, but she does watch the whole thing because that's her tendency, right? Is to watch more of this content that is kind of scary in nature about health-related issues. And that made me so sad. You know, that's wrong, It is wrong to prey off of somebody's insecurities and to prey off of their mental illness. And if humans were overseeing that more, it wouldn't happen that way. Exactly. So the thing is, though, is you can't do that at scale. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a very fascinating kind of question to ponder. It's kind of like not like we're going to be battling... Arnold Schwarzenegger or like, no. you know, in Blade Runner, the replicants, you know, we're not, you can't, <laughs> there's no button we can turn because what's happening is social media is turning the humans against each other. Yes. That's what's happening. The polarization of news and politics and just people in general. And, you know, people are just nasty right now. We've talked about it all of 2020. You got COVID, we have, you know, social unrest, we have politics, we have just everything. We have the wildfires and everything that we used to be able to all agree on or at least admit that is true or that should possibly, you know, the kind of the common reality that we could all agree on as humans, right? Like, let's all drive on the right-hand side of the road. Okay, everybody, let's do it. And then you have a conspiracy theory about why that is so, and then people will stop doing that. You know what I mean? It's kind of one of those things where it's just everything that we all kind of collectively try to do so that we can all live together as harmoniously as possible (laughs) is being ripped out from under us and... That's basically what's happening with Facebook or social media. 
not just Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube and all that. So we are battling an AI, but it's not the AI we thought it would be. One of the last questions that the documentary posed is, do we want this? There are many times throughout the content that that question is posed. Do we want this? You know, as you look around and as you look inward and look at your own feelings and behaviors and inclinations and motivations, is this the way that the algorithms are currently working and the world that they are creating? Is this what we want? Is it what we want? Because to me, I know that for you, Adrian, it felt like a lot of it felt really overpowering, right? Because you feel so small as an individual against the systemic problem that exists. I felt like that question of, do you want this? If we could pose that and together as a community look at if this is what we want, that at least gives us a place where maybe we could come to some agreements of truth and reality, you know? Maybe we don't want this. We could at least agree on what we don't want, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great thing to say. Do we want this? And once we say, do we want this or do we not want this, then we can figure out a little bit more what we do want and then ask for it because later podcasts we're going to get to like what you can do so there is stuff that you can do now so don't panic everybody yes we're (laughs) going to talk throughout the month about what you can do as a social media manager as an individual and what we the people can do as a whole so this is the intro to that (laughs) this is the intro but all of these solutions and all the things we're going to be talking about is all human based you can't ask facebook to fix itself I mean, I kind of liken it to the climate crisis or, you know, the oil industry, right? The oil is there. We're going to be using it. It's kind of the genie that came out of the bottle. You can't stop it. So what is, you know, Shell or Chevron or whatever, what is their incentive to stop people from polluting, right? What is their incentive Now there are more electric cars. There's people who have been demanding it. And so they have to pivot and figure out what they're going to be doing, whether or not, you know, they're going to be doing it ethically or well, you know, who's to say, but we have to ask for it and we have to be very specific about what we ask for, I think, because it's not, again, it's not going to fix itself. Before we wrap up this intro episode, one thing I want people to be mindful of if they're going to go watch it now is that just like any piece of content, this documentary has its own agenda too, right? And so we do need to be mindful of doing the same things we would do on any piece of content, checking sources, being mindful when we feel emotionally triggered, not just acting on that emotional trigger, but digging deeper into what is and isn't true. One thing that I actually did not like throughout the documentary is with the mix of interviews plus actual footage plus this drama element that was acted, sometimes it was difficult to tell what was real footage, what was part of the drama element. And that's one thing that I didn't like in it because I thought, you know, if the point is to really clearly identify what is truth, mixing drama 
and staged looking news with real news was difficult to understand what was and wasn't. So you have to be very mindful of that. Don't just accept everything that's coming from that from this piece of content as truth and fact and real. You need to stay aware and mindful as you're watching that just like any piece of content. Yeah, definitely. Good advice, Lacey. Well, are you happy that's a good enough intro for us for The Social Dilemma this month? I think that will do. Now you just need to go watch it because you've already spent so much time with us hearing about it. (laughs) That's right. So go watch it. And then next week when you come back, Chad and I are going to be discussing what social media managers can do about it. So I'm excited to talk with him a little bit about that. Chad is new to the team, so it'll be podcast listeners first time hearing from him. So that'll be fun. Okay, Adrian. So at the end of every Spryspace podcast episode, we like to talk about where you've been working. As an all-remote team at Spry, sometimes we're working in interesting places. So where have we been working interesting lately? So last week, two weeks ago, actually, you and I had our first face-to-face meeting. Well, not you, but I had my first kind of in-person meeting with a client. And that was very odd. We, you know, we got our temperatures taken when we went in. We all had our masks on. We all sat in a large room kind of far away from each other. And I kind of realized, I mean, because I've been very locked up during COVID. I don't have any kids. It's very easy for me to just have no contact with the outside world because I don't have any outside commitments or anything besides work. Beyond, you know, going and seeing a random friend sitting outside their house for a beer or whatever and going to the grocery store, I have not done much. So it was kind of weird going to a place of business and sitting super far away. And I kind of realized something about myself. I mean, I knew this already. I am an extrovert. I freaking love people. I love goofing off. I love just, you know, chit-chatting and bantering and all that and kind of like it puts a damper on things when you don't want to be, I mean, not that I get super close to people, but you know what I mean? Like, this is different. It's different. It is. So, it is different. Yeah. And during that time, it was really nice. I got to do kind of a guest speak, a guest teaching role for Washington State. And so we just popped over to your in-laws house and I set up Zoom there and was able to guest teach right after we had that meeting right at your in-laws house. So that was great. I mean, it was awkward. Everything's weird right now with people trying to be human, but stay far away from each other and get lasers pointed at your forehead to check your temperature before you go in. It's a weird time. It is just weird. But we're handling it. We are. You know what, Lacey? I just think that was what the world is. It's always been weird. We just, maybe we just put in sharp relief now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, if you enjoyed this content and you want to keep being a part of this conversation, we're going to be talking about the social dilemma all month long on all of our social channels, which you can find at Think Spry on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. We're Spry Social Media Marketing. And we will be talking in our Facebook group as well, Spry Space. So we hope to continue this conversation with you because we think that the more and more that people understand, the more we're going to be able to make collective change together. And what else is the point, right? Yeah. The other quick thing is that this is not to say that we are not going to be using social media. Au contraire, we freaking love social media still. We just are very invested in having people use it in a healthful way. 
so that it can be a tool and not us being the tool. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for your time today. And thank you for those of us listening. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of your day that you go watch The Social Dilemma and that you always keep learning. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.